0: Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our feature presentation. As you turn to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, starting at verse 9, we're going to read from verses 9 through 15. In full disclosure, I put my phone up here, and for the first time, I think, um, ever, I'm actually looking at the time before I start preaching to try to, to try to be kind to you. When I preached a similar sermon at CVP a month or so ago, um, it went over an hour. And I decided to be kind to you. And I split it into two, and we're making it bite-sized today. So... Um, that's my, that's, that's my Christmas gift to you this morning. So John 15, verses 9 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have these words of the Lord Jesus documented for us in a perfect and powerful way. And so I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Please be seated. Well, if you were to ask me this morning, or any time really, what I am most thankful for, I would likely respond with the names of people in my life my children, my family, you all, my friends. Maybe you would be the same way. What are you thankful for? Probably we go there. But if you were to ask me what causes me the most pain, the most worry, the most stress, I, like you, would probably respond with my family, my children, my friends. One of the best things in life, one of the best gifts that God has given to us, are the people that he's put into our lives. And one of the hardest things that God has given to us are the people he's put into our lives. So, what I want to talk about today is friendship. Friendship is built into this world. It's a necessary part of being human. And yet it is the cause of all sorts of disappointment and drama and anger and bitterness and disunity. And Christians, unfortunately, we often set a really bad example in this regard. We oftentimes don't do much better than the world and certainly not not well enough for the world to look at us and how we do our friendships and go, wow, wow. Something good is happening there. So today I want to lay a foundation with you and leave you with some questions to consider over this next week. And then next week we'll talk about some practical considerations of friendship. My hope is that in doing so that we will learn, we together, each of us, and then together we'll learn to be friends in a way that accurately reflects our relationship to Jesus that we will find peace rather than drama in them, and that God would be glorified in our friendships. And I'll, I'll tell you this. When I preach a sermon like this, I am not coming to you because I believe that I get 100% a smiley face and a star at the top of my ho- friendship homework paper. I, I need these words, and as I've been preparing it's been made clear to me areas where I have not been a good friend, where I need to do better. So I come along with you. Though the words that I'm going to speak, I pray, are authoritative because they're God's, I am not pretending that I do it right all the time. And so if if I've offended you, if you think, well, you're not a good friend to me, okay, acknowledged. And we will need to learn to do better together. But Today, I want to lay the foundation for friendship. Where do friendships come from? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Where do friendships come from? Relationships, friendships, or otherwise, are not a man-made idea. They are not a man-made invention. Neither are they an evolutionary adaptation to our environment to give us competitive advantage. That's oftentimes the go-to or, uh any materialist thinker today, always an evolutionary adapt- adaptation response. Plenty of animals live in solitary lives, they, except for just brief interruptions where they mate, and then they leave. And in doing so, they would avoid all of the relational pain and complications that we experience. So now evolution can't explain why we have this compulsive need for one another. Now, the reason that we find ourselves inexorably drawn into relationships is that the world in which we live, the structure of the cosmos, reflects the character of the God who created it. Why do we have friendships? Why do we have relationships? Why do we have each other? Why do we need each other? Why can we not get away from each other? Because this world reflects the character of God. The art, you are art. Yes, you are. The art reflects the artist. Relationships are not simply a good idea. We're created for relationship because God is a God in relationship. This is similar to the other attributes of God. God is not simply loving, God is not simply a, a loving being, He is love. Love was not an invention of God that he happened to be really good at. Wow, that was really I thought it was a good idea, and it turned out really well. So let's make it a habit. We'll make love a habit. Because it was, it it just worked out. Wow. No? Love is the necessary part of who he is. And as the source of love, he is also, and he must be relational. God is love. Of necessity, that means relationship. Love means relationship. You can't separate the two. Being relational is necessitated by the fact that he is love because love requires an object outside of oneself. And this is where I'm going to begin to tread on all of the pop songs and a lot of the the contemporary ideas of what love is. Self-love, at the core of what love fundamentally is, is an, an impossibility. It's, it's possible, in fact, I hope, I hope that you all, every single one of you are ignorant of what I'm about to tell you, and then you're not going to be ignorant, but it'd be nice if you, if you go, what? That's a thing? It's possible you've not yet heard about the new and deeply tragic practice of sologamy. Any? Any? Okay, so far so good. Or self-weddings? You heard of those? Okay, Liz. Poor Liz. <laughs> the idea that you can marry yourself. It saw an uptick in interest in the solitude of the COVID policies, which made people search for ways to make sense of their loneliness. And if you're groaning and rolling your eyes and scratching your heads and thinking that's a real thing, Unfortunately, it is. It is insane. It is impossible. To marry oneself is impossible. Marriage is a unique relationship of love. And as an act of love, it requires two people, an object outside of oneself on which to place your loyalty and affection. Giving a gift to oneself is not giving at all. It's just spending. God is able to be love because of his triune existence. Allah is not able to be love because he is a solitary monad. He is eternally alone. Our God can be love because he is eternally three persons in perfect unity. One being, in essence, eternally three persons. So built into the very being of God, then, is the reality of relationship. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, living in relationship with one another. And because they are distinct persons, they can love one another. Because we are his creatures and reflect the divine artist's nature. Built into the very essence of what it means to be human, then, is the need for relationship, for companionship. If you're one of those people, maybe because there's been a lot of hurt in your life. Or maybe because you just get exhausted by other people. Or for whatever reason, if you're one of those people who wonders, sometimes, Do I re- am I really required to pursue these relationships? Do I have to be with these people, whoever those people are? The answer is yes. Under normal conditions, we need other people. That's built into the system by God but then we're, we're brought back to that right, harsh reality that causes some people to say, do I really need this? Isn't there any way I can escape? It's just so much easier when I'm alone. Why? Why, if they're sometimes some of the hardest, or the best experiences, why are they also some of the hardest? I mean, you may be in a relationship, relationships that are selfish, they're distant, they're damaging, or maybe things are, you're, it's better now, but the echo of that or the, this, the bruises, the, the injuries that you've experienced, it's, you, you can't even forget the pain. Or maybe some of you, you're longing for relationships that you don't have. You're dominated by a sense of loneliness. You're surrounded by family relationships that are broken and marriage relationships that are broken and friendships that are broken. And, or you're afraid they're just about to break. If the primary goal of life were to live life, so if this was your primary goal, I mean, we all know what our primary goal is because you're good Presbyterians, right? But if, if we were to set that aside for a moment, just think, well, no, a different goal. Okay, if our primary goal in life were to live as long as possible with as little pain as possible, one could make the case that the best thing to do would be the following. I'll give you three options. Um, pain, avoid it. That's the goal. Well then, number one, just avoid people altogether. Just avoid them. Number two, okay, you can't avoid them. I'm gonna limit the depth of connection. I'm just gonna always hold people at arm's length. I'm never gonna let them in close. I know what happens when that happens. That's pain. That's, that's another option you could do, if that was your goal. Number three, okay, I, I want some depth, but people are so risky. I'll just limit the number of connections. I'll curate my friendships and only allow connections with people of the highest caliber and the least risk. That's the the relational actuary approach. And some of you have tried this. Some of you are still trying to live this way. Why would God do this? Is it just some unfunny cosmic prank That he would require this and then make it so difficult? No. The problem is not with with all things in this broken world. The problem is not with the design or the designer, but with the brokenness that we bring into our relationships. And our conscience tells us immediately that the three solutions: avoiding limiting the depth of or limiting the number of connections in our relationships, that can't be right either. We know this because that's not what Jesus did, this isn't how he lived. He didn't avoid people. He didn't avoid people. What did he do instead? He became people. If he wanted to avoid people, if that was a good goal, think about what he did. Think about what we're celebrating right now. His incarnation means I become human. I take on peopleness. I enter into human history and surround myself with these knuckleheads. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, scratch number one. Number two, he didn't limit the depth of connection. Always holding people at arm length, never letting them in close. He risked loss to the point of weeping when the loss touched him in the death of his close friend. He risked betrayal at the hand of one of his closest friends, Peter, and then consider what he did. He then gloriously and graciously commissioned him He risked death in bringing a man into his inner circle who he knew would betray him. Brought him in close. And not so that he could tactically avoid pain, but precisely because that's what was needed. If self-preservation were the most important goal of life, then Jesus was an utter failure. If personal feelings of fulfillment were the goal, then Jesus is a terrible example. Okay, well, okay, depth is good, so I'll just limit the number. Is that what Jesus did? No, he didn't curate friendships. Only allowing connections with the people of the highest caliber or the least risk. No, his friendships, yeah, they included an inner three, of course. But also a close and intimate 12. A crowd of disciples and the crowd of friends in his life, they kept growing every day because every day he sought out more Companions, more friends, more people along the way, more people to bring in to his orbit. These friends were all risks, every single one of them. No, it wasn't risky, actually. It was a guarantee. They weren't risky. It was a guarantee. They will hurt you. They will disappoint you. They will betray you. Guaranteed. And what did he do? Come, sit with me. Come, be with me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Notice that he sought out friends, but not that he might benefit himself, but that his friends might benefit. He made friends not for anything that he would receive for them, but so that he might better give to them. Come in close so I can give better. Jesus doesn't just point the way to an example of better friendship, though. He doesn't just set an example. He does something far greater. He did something in the history of this ragtag group of cosmic criminals of which we are a part. He paid the ransom price for friendship. Friendship was destroyed in the fall. His His cross work and his resurrection paid the ransom price for friendship itself. He bought back the possibility that friendship might itself once again become the blessing that it was intended to be. There's an antidote. There's an antidote to the sickness that poisoned friendship. That's good news. Smile. There's an antidote. Your friendships can be redeemed. They no longer have to be poisonous. You don't have to fear them anymore. There's a hero who came and rescued us from captivity to the sin of self. Jesus is the person to whom we must look if we are to be rescued from our relational darkness, our brokenness, and our enslavement. Do you want that kind of friendship? Well, I have good news. You are not going to find a better friend than Jesus Christ. You're not going to find a better friend. He didn't just give a good example of friendship. He is a good friend. Today, you need a friend. You feel lonely. You don't, you don't have to look any farther. He's not a living parable. He's a living friend. The best of friends. The solution to our friend problem doesn't begin with a book on friendship written by Jesus. You might find in Walmart or on Amazon. Amazon. No, the solution to our friend problem begins by turning in faith to the living word and to our divine friend. If you're struggling with friendship, in friendships, wanting them, you you have to start here. You have to start with the friendship of Jesus. And once we finally find our security in the perfect, delightful, life-giving friendship of Jesus Christ, then we can finally begin to see and to put into practice the reality that we are not going to find a better example of friendship, a better example now to look to, to say, okay, how can I be a friend to all these people around me than in the way that Jesus chose to interact with, with people. But you don't want to look to him as, as a, an example first. You do that, and then you, this is just another way that we tried to do it in our own strength. Okay, I see how good he was at it, and then I try, and then what do you do? You've got to come back next week and confess. I failed again, I failed again, I failed again, I failed again. That is just will little undo you. There's no hope, there's no life, there's no freedom, there's no joy in that. But if you look to Jesus first as your friend, to be your friend, the friend you need that you can't find anywhere else, the friend who's never going to fail you, And then, in the security that comes with that, then then you look and say, okay, Jesus, show me. Now you have the security and the strength that you need to wade in. It's true that the way that Jesus calls us to live, the way that he calls us to live out our friendships, is hard. It's costly. Many of us have tried, go, tried to just ignoring the life and wisdom of Christ in our friendships, and we found out that our faithless hopes left us completely unsatisfied and a disaster in the wake of our autonomous attempts at friendship. We often think we know better. It's, I mentioned a few of them, you know, just warding them off, avoiding them, finding our little island, limiting friendship, curating... We, we try all these different ways. I know a way that's better than you, God. But as J. Vernon McGee once quipped, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. God invented friendship. And then Christ, in Christ, he showed us how to do it in a fallen world where friends hurt each other. There's nobody who understood the need for, or the, re- the reality of friendship in a fallen world better than Jesus. So with this in, in, in the background of our mind, as with this as the context for our passage today, I want to look again at John 15, Again, starting at verse 9. Let's read it together. I'm going to walk our way through it. I'm going to come up with some questions to leave you today. John 15, verse, starting at verse 9. I'm going to read slow so that we can, we can chew. We can, we can hold on to the words and think through these words as, as Jesus makes an argument for us. As the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is what I call kind of a cascade of love. A cascade of love flowing from the Father. We see four groups of people mentioned here in this short little passage. God the Father, Jesus, you, and each other. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Boom, right there. The Father, Jesus, you, and as these words are spoken, we see this sea swell. Have any of you ever been in the ocean, out past the breakers, and you can feel like the rise of the ocean right? as a swell from out, way out, in, in our case, the Pacific, is coming in, and you feel it rising. And It's what makes some of the greatest waves that we get to surf, if that's something that you like to do. But you, you feel the rise of this massive body of water Well, as these words are spoken, a sea swell begins to move, swelling the entire ocean of love. And the swell begins with the Father. He generates it. The cascade of love flows down to His Son. The Father loves Jesus. It overflows into His his Son. And then that flood overflows from Jesus to who? To you. Jesus loves you. It starts with the Father and it begins to cascade over through the Son, to the Son, through the Son, to you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then in verse 11, look at verse 11. These are words that if we're ready for it, will never be the same. God in Christ has chosen to love us. The unlovely, rebel traitors that we are And so this waterfall, this cascade, this swell of love doesn't end with you. Where does it go? Look at verse 12. My command is this. Love one another. The response expected, because it is the response of love, is that we then respond to God's love by loving each other. And so it begins with the Father. It flows down through the Son. It flows down into your life. And then it just goes everywhere. It just makes a mess a love mess of every relationship that you have. Everything gets touched by it. Everyone gets touched by it. Jesus takes the love that he receives. What does he do with it? Gives it to you. You take the love you receive. What do you do with it? What, what your rabbi did. It spills over. Giving, giving what we're in the season of doing now, thanksgiving, and then we're going to do some gift giving. Giving is the divine reflex of love. Think about you go, to the de- you go to the doctor and he hits your knee and your knee goes like that and you can't even control it. If you've encountered the love of God, the reflex, the divine reflex is, I want to give, I want to give, I want to give, I want to pour out into other people. Love is ever expanding. It cannot be contained, and so it overflows the bank. It's not a fixed commodity, but a living, growing reality. In a sense, because Jesus is love, and love naturally, reflexively, just expands and grows and overflows and reaches out for objects to love. In a sense, Jesus couldn't even help but love. It's his nature. And we always do that which is consistent with our nature. This isn't to say that Jesus loved against his will. No. The opposite's true. He loved because it is His nature to do so. It's the difference between our nature before the fall and our nature after the fall. Think about that. Before the fall, humanity, though there was only two of them at the time, existed and loved like Jesus. It was humanity's nascent nature to just overflow into others in a constant state of giving and thankful receiving. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you see why the, the, the rebellion that they experienced was so tragic? To live in a relationship where there was no fear, there was no striving, there was no grasping, just this constant giving and receiving and thankfulness and joy. In the post-fall condition, our natural impulse is to demand. Think about this as we think about our friendships. Post-fall, after the fall, in our rebellious state, in our need for a Savior, our natural impulse is to demand, grasp, complain. We'll steal if we have to in order to satisfy what we feel our needs are. Jesus shows us, though, what humanity was truly supposed to be, how families and a civilization of families were supposed to live together. It was supposed to be a Christmas built into the very rhythm of work and rest. Always Christmas, whether we were resting or working, just delight, giving, being together, family, bringing strangers into your home to make them family, just Christmas all the time. But sin arrested this process in the fall of the first Adam. Yet it was set aright again in the resurrection and the life of the second Adam. And that life is now the flame that glows. Christian, that flame glows in your heart. If our hearts have been transformed, then we will find our nature changing, moving back toward its design, and then moving forward toward Christ and the glorious freedom that awaits you. Our reflex will no longer be so much to grab, to hold on, to hide the love that we've received. Having been loved by Jesus, we are now not only enabled to love others, but we will have a natural reflexive response to desire, to love, to give, to pour out, to be emptied ourselves for the sake of others. That's, are you seeing that progressively in yourself? Or are you still grasping, holding on? um, what is it called when you are, you're afraid the world's going to end and so you... Hoarders. Are you a hoarder? A love hoarder? Jesus wasn't. We must follow in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus, not because it's a rote obligatory thing. As we are loved, our hearts and desires change and we should love with the easiness and the delight with which the Father loves the Son and which with the Son loves you. And then what do you do with it? And when I say easiness, I don't mean that love is easy. It's not. At least not yet. Maybe it will be easy. Maybe there'll be, um, I don't don't know if there's the right word, to think past glorification and go, what is it like? Because work is good, and doing hard things is good. I mean, have you ever wondered about that? Will these things be easy? Or maybe there's just no category to really understand that yet because we're so bound up in this fallen state. But what I do mean is this, that it becomes more and more the natural inclination of our hearts. Maybe it's the natural inclination we delight to do what's hard. Love, love in your friendships, love in your relationships should be the sleep talk of your lives. What comes out when you're not even thinking? Love should be the fruit of your heart's habit of thought. Habits. You don't think about habits. You don't practice habits. They just happen. You're pressed, you're slapped, you're moved unexpectedly and habit. Well, what should be the habit of our heart? Well, love. Love should be the natural gravity of our life to bring others into our orbit that we might let them feel the warmth of the love that has warmed our hearts. We have a gravity now, and we, that gravity draws people into our orbit. And so far, I think, okay, I'm tracking with you, Dave. I agree. That makes sense. It's hard, but it's good. Got it. I'll give you the affirmative. Yes and amen. We've been loved, loved, love gives. So far, so good. But even as these words were being given to the disciples in John 15, they didn't have the benefit of knowing the whole story. Remember that. John 15, in the the plot line, where are they, and where's the cross? It's not like they hadn't been warned, but they didn't get it. It's very clear from the narrative. They didn't get it. They didn't know what was coming. No matter how many times Jesus tried to explain it, they didn't get it. And so he, say, he says these words, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and they're like, oh yeah, that sounds awesome. How sweet. Love. Love sounds great. They didn't know what was coming. The shocking, the dark climax. The cross is yet future to them when he says these words. It's easy to talk about love and its beauty and its glory when there's no sacrifice, no pain attached to it. Very easy. They didn't know what he was setting them up for. It's easy to love in the abstract. All the songs we listen to are like that not all, Um, pop songs, they're like that. They're loving in the abstract. They're loving the figments of their imagination. And when suddenly that figment turns into reality, guess what uh, the pop star is singing about now? Her breakup, right? And how awful he was. He didn't turn out to be what she had created in her imagination, But Jesus didn't allow love to remain an ethereal idea just to be thought about. In these words, in John 15, Jesus is foreshadowing his own act of love, the paradigmatic act of love, the paradigm. What does love look like? That's it. When he tells them that the greatest love is the one that is self-sacrificial. This is my commandment. You want to know my commandment? Here's my commandment. Love one another. Oh, love one another as I have loved you. So sweet. So easy to say. So easy when that love is, hey, come sit down at my table. I got some food for you. Easy. That's nice. That's pleasant. I like that. And then he says this. Look at verse 12. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Huh. He probably means something. That he's, there's a spiritual application to that which there is, I'm sure, but, but oh, maybe he means... And you start immediately to backpedal, to soften. No, we know what happened. Love. Even to the point of dying. Love, even to the point of dying for enemies. Dying for enemies that they might be transformed into friends and family. As the Father... As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Love each other as I, as I have loved you. There's an important little word there. He said it a few times. A word that we should find great comfort in but also be deeply challenged by. This word brings great comfort but also at the same time great challenge the word as. Think about it. It indicates, this word indicates that we have an example to follow. We can look to the love relationship that Jesus has with the Father. The Father loves him. And out of that love, Jesus desires to obey his Father. It is the eternal experience of love between the Father and the Son that motivates Jesus to love you. This is deeply encouraging because it is only the love of God that provides hope for us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you as, as. I've loved you this way. And we go, wow, thank God he's chosen to love me this way. But this is also deeply challenging because the natural expectation of Jesus here is that if we have truly experienced the love of Jesus, that's what we'll, we'll do what Jesus did. It's this now eternal, dependable, inexhaustible experience of love received from our Savior and King that motivates us, or ought to motivate us, to do that same kind of loving through faithful, sacrificial obedience. And that's where, that's where things... That's no longer ethereal, it's no longer abstract, it's no longer easy, it no longer feels sweet, it's no longer sentimental... Now that's where that's where the the words from the confession today, from the reading of the the law of God, don't grow weary in doing good. Because this is where the ads gets really hard. But the good news is that Jesus is not a hypocrite. we're we're hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. We're inconsistent holding other people to these standards, and really um, trying to find every way to wiggle out of holding ourselves to that same standard. But that's not who Jesus is. He's not a hypocrite. He only asked us to do exactly what he did and what he did perfectly. The command of God the Father to the God the Son is to love to death. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And what is the context of this command? The context brings what is meant by do what I command to a helpful and dramatic clarity. Love like I love and though Jesus had not yet done it to the full, we now know what he was intending to do. He was willing to love and to do so at the expense of his own life. This is at the heart of the Christian message and therefore at the heart of Christian friendship. Christian friendship, which is just another way of saying friendship in God's world, Friendship practiced the way that pleases and honors him is a way of relating to people. So here's the foundation of Christian friendship. It is a way of relating to people that seeks their interests first, that sacrifices for their good, that thinks about their desires and their needs before your own, and that is willing to do this to the glorious and bitter end. That's the foundation of Christian friendship. I don't know of any pop songs that have been singing that recently. And he says, you're, you're my friends if you, if you live and you love this way. You're my friends if you do what I command. We're as friends if we do friendship as he commanded us to, as he set the example of. So as we end our time together this morning, I'm, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I'll ask the question. I'll give you a, a, a chance to kind of think about it here. Just a bunch of questions. I'll send out the questions so you can be thinking about them this week. And I want to encourage you to do so because we haven't... I mean, I've been talking about love and kind of friendship in the abstract. Next week, we're going to begin to really apply some of this. But here here are some things to consider. Are you approaching friendship as Jesus did? For, For some examples, in your friendships, are you seeking to love first or to be loved? When you get upset with your friends, and that happens and we, we can apply this right to any relationship. When you get upset with your friends, is it because you are not getting what you want or that you feel you need? Is that what's getting in the way? Really? Does offense often accompany your friendships? Are you getting offended a lot. Are you easily offended? Are you approaching friendship as a consumer? What can I get out of this? Or as a provider? Do you think first about what you need in your friendships rather than what is needed by your friends? Related to that would be this. Is giving and sacrifice with no... Oh, this is... Don't just go, oh no, I'm good there. This one... This one I think will catch up most, if not all of us. Is giving and sacrifice with no expectation of return what attends or even dominates your approach to friendship? I'm going to be that person's friend. I'm going to give. I'm going to sacrifice. I don't expect anything in return nothing. Just want to give. Is that how you're operating? How about if you're searching for friends? You want, you want friendship. In your, in your search for friendship, who, who initiates that? <coughs> Being a good, true friend means that you take the initiative. How do we know that? What did Jesus do? Who loved first? Who sought you out? The Father initiates love with the Son. Who responds? Jesus initiates love with us, and we respond. If we are to follow that example, then then we need to make initiative a central aspect of how we operate as friends. Or are you, alternatively, the one who, if you were to be honest with yourself as you do kind of this accounting, are you the one who's more often, or maybe maybe even always, expecting others to initiate to do the work? You be my friend. That person's not being my friend. That person hasn't initiated. That person hasn't done this. They should have done that. And you go back to the earlier, now you're offended. The uncomfortable truth is that we're natural demanders and consumers. And so the truth may be that you are not a very friendly person. That might be the truth. Not that you're not kind or nice, but you may place the burden on other people, and when they're unwilling to pick up that burden that you've handed to them, you blame them. You're not a good friend. Do you really have the right to demand that of others? Is that how Jesus treats you? Here, here's another burden for you. And when you are just unwilling or unweak, uh, uh, unwilling or weak, he just criticizes and gets offended. You're not a good friend. As we apply this text to our friendships, How ought it to shape our practice of friendship? Consider these things. Friendship requires persistence. Jesus says, remain in my love. Friendship requires doing what is right. Do what I command. Friendships involve joy. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We give the joy that we've been given to our friends. And lastly, friendship is not about slavery, but about companionship. We are brought into confidence as a traveling companion, a friend on the road. So next week, I want to finish this topic by talking in more detail about proper expectations for friendship, how to respond to pain and challenges in friendship, and there are many, and some common questions and relationship problems and how to overcome them. But for now, I encourage each of us to prayerfully consider our friendships this week. I'll send these questions for you to... Consider as individuals and as families. Compare them to how Jesus engaged in friendship and consider where repentance may be needed so that you can flourish in friendship. That's the goal. Your flourishing, your joy, your blessing to the world. And as a response to that, your blessing even to yourself. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.